Do you like the Tales from the Crypt? Do you love the Tales from the Crypt? Even if you've never seen an episode, this podcast is for you. I'm Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, and host of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Each week, I break down another great episode from the TV series The Tales from the Crypt. Audio clips are included, so even if you haven't watched that episode, you're good to go. There are also special guests, trivia, mini-movie reviews, and much more. What are you waiting for? Check out the Good Evening Kitties podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Check it out today. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Keep your feet warm. Or get something cool for Christmas. You know, Christmas is coming eventually. Be prepared. Get a cool shirt from your favorite cult film. Look cool like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. He's cool, right? Curtis Armstrong, still a cool guy? That's what I thought. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This is one of our reading episodes. Currently, we're on hiatus as it is August. And I, D.B. Spitzer, do not like to sweat in studio where I cannot run the fan. And also, writing season eight is what I do at the very last moment and just kind of goof off during this time. All right. How about some Charles Dexter Ward? This is part one, two, or three, because I don't feel like recording more. Hey, why don't you donate some money so I can, I don't know, get better equipment and better speakers and uh, microphones and whatnot. I don't know. Spend more time editing these things. Anyway, thank you very much. You can click the patron button on podbean.com at pgttcm.podbean.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Google Podcasts and iTunes and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, but fuck Facebook and... All right, Charles Dexter Ward. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Read by Morgan Scorpion Chapter 2, Parts 5 and 6 5. The probability that Kerwin was on guard and attempting unusual things, as suggested by the odd shaft of light, precipitated at last the action so carefully devised by the band of serious citizens. According to the Smith Diary, a company of about a hundred men met at 10 p.m. on Friday, April the 12th, 1771, in the great room of Thurston's Tavern at the sign of the Golden Lion on Waybosset Point across the bridge. Of the guiding group of prominent men, in addition to the leader John Brown, there were present Dr. Bowen with his case of surgical instruments, President Manning without the great periwig, the largest in the colonies for which he was noted, Governor Hopkins, wrapped in his dark cloak and accompanied by his seafaring brother Essek, whom he had initiated at the last moment with the permission of the rest. John Carter, Captain Mathewson and Captain Whipple, who was to lead the actual raiding party. These chiefs conferred apart in a rear chamber, after which Captain Whipple emerged to the great room and gave the gathered seamen their last oaths and instructions. Eliezer Smith was with the leaders as they sat in the rear apartment awaiting the arrival of Ezra Whedon, 
whose duty was to keep track of Kerwin and report the departure of his coach for the farm. About 10.30, a heavy rumble was heard on the great bridge, followed by the sound of a coach in the street outside, and at that hour there was no need of waiting for Whedon in order to know that the doomed man had set out for his last night of unhallowed wizardry. A moment later, as the receding coach clattered faintly over the muddy dock bridge, Whedon appeared and the raiders fell silently into military order in the street, shouldering the firelocks, fowling pieces or whaling harpoons which they had with them. Whedon and Smith were with the party, and of the deliberating citizens there were present for active service Captain Whipple, the leader, Captain Essex Hopkins, John Carter, President Manning, Captain Mathewson and Dr. Bowen, together with Moses Brown, who had come up at the 11th hour, though absent from the preliminary session in the tavern. All these freemen and their hundred sailors began the long march without delay, grim and a trifle apprehensive as they left the muddy dock behind and mounted the gentle rise of Broad Street toward the Portuxet Road. Just beyond Elder Snow's church, some of the men turned back to take a parting look at Providence, lying outspread under the early spring stars. Steeples and gables rose dark and shapely, and salt breezes swept up gently from the cove north of the bridge. Vega was climbing above the great hill across the water, whose crest of trees was broken by the roof line of the unfinished college edifice. At the root of that hill, and along the narrow mounting lanes of its side, the old town dreamed, old Providence, for whose safety and sanity so monstrous and colossal a blasphemy was about to be wiped out. An hour and a quarter later, the raiders arrived, as previously agreed, at the Fenner farmhouse, where they heard a final report on their intended victim. He had reached his farm over half an hour before, and the strange light had soon afterwards shot once more into the sky, but there were no lights in any visible windows. This was always the case of late. Even as this news was given, another great glare arose toward the south, and the party realized that they had indeed come close to the scene of awesome and unnatural wonders. Captain Whipple now ordered his force to separate into three divisions, one of 20 men under Eliezer Smith to strike across to the shore and guard the landing place against possible reinforcements for Kerwin until summoned by a messenger for desperate service, a second of 20 men under Captain Essex Hopkins to steal down into the river valley behind the Kerwin farm and demolish with axes or gunpowder the oaken door in the high, steep bank, and the third to close in on the house and adjacent buildings themselves. Of this division, one-third was to be led by Captain Mathewson to the cryptical stone edifice with high, narrow windows, another third to follow Captain Whipple himself to the main farmhouse, and the remaining third to preserve a circle around the whole group of buildings until summoned by a final emergency signal. The river party would break down the hillside door at the sound of a single whistle blast, then wait and capture anything which might issue from the regions within. At the sound of two whistle blasts, it would advance through the aperture to oppose the enemy or join the rest of the raiding contingent. The party at the stone building would accept these respective signals in an analogous manner, forcing an entrance at the first and at the second descending whatever passage into the ground might be discovered and joining the general or focal warfare expected to take place within the caverns. A third, or emergency signal, of three blasts would summon the immediate reserve from its general guard duty, 
its 20 men dividing equally and entering the unknown depths through both farmhouse and stone building. Captain Whiffle's belief in the existence of catacombs was absolute, and he took no alternative into consideration when making his plans. He had with him a whistle of great power and shrillness, and did not fear any upsetting or misunderstanding of signals. The final reserve at the landing, of course, was nearly out of the whistle's range, hence would require a special messenger if needed for help. Moses Brown and John Carter went with Captain Hopkins to the riverbank, while President Manning was detailed with Captain Matheson to the stone building. Dr. Bowen, with Ezra Whedon, remained in Captain Whipple's party, which was to storm the farmhouse itself. The attack was to begin as soon as a messenger from Captain Hopkins had joined Captain Whipple to notify him of the river party's readiness. The leader would then deliver the loud single blast, and the various advance parties would commence their simultaneous attack on three points. Shortly before 1am, the three divisions left the Fenner farmhouse, one to guard the landing, another to seek the river valley and the hillside door, and the third to subdivide and attend to the actual buildings of the Cohen farm. Eliezer Smith, who accompanied the shore-guarding party, records in his diary an uneventful march and a long wait on the bluff by the bay, broken once by what seemed to be the distant sound of the signal whistle, and again by a peculiar muffled blend of roaring and crying, and a powder blast which seemed to come from the same direction. Later on, one man thought he caught some distant gunshots, and still later, Smith himself felt the throb of titanic and thunderous words resounding in upper air. It was just before dawn that a single haggard messenger, with wild eyes and a hideous unknown odour about his clothing, appeared and told the detachment to disperse quietly to their homes, and never again think or speak of the night's doings, or of him who had been Joseph Kerwin. Something about the bearing of the messenger carried a conviction which his mere words could never have conveyed, for though he was a seaman well known to many of them, there was something obscurely lost or gained in his soul, which set him for evermore apart. It was the same later on when they met other old companions who had gone into that zone of horror. Most of them had lost or gained something imponderable and indescribable. They had seen or heard or felt something which was not for human creatures, and could not forget it. For them there was never any gossip, for to even the commonest of mortal instincts there are terrible boundaries. And from that single messenger, the party at the shore caught a nameless awe which almost sealed their own lips. Very few are the rumours which ever came from any of them, and Eliezer Smith's diary is the only written record which has survived from that whole expedition which set forth from the sign of the Golden Lion under the stars. Charles Ward, however, discovered another vague sidelight in some Fenner correspondence which he found in New London, where he knew another branch of the family had lived. It seemed that the Fenners, from whose house the doomed farm was distantly visible, had watched the departing column of raiders, and had heard very clearly the angry barking of the Kerwin dogs, followed by the first shrill blast which precipitated the attack. This blast had been followed by a repetition of the great shaft of light from the stone building, and in another moment, after a quick sounding of the second signal ordering a general invasion, there had come a subdued prattle of musketry, followed by a horrible roaring cry, which the correspondent Luke Fenner had represented in his epistle by the characters, War, war. 
This cry, however, had possessed a quality which no mere writing could convey, and the correspondent mentions that his mother fainted completely at the sound. It was later repeated less loudly, and further but more muffled evidences of gunfire ensued, together with a loud explosion of powder from the direction of the river. About an hour afterwards all the dogs began to bark frightfully, and there were vague ground rumblings so marked that the candlesticks tottered on the mantelpiece. A strong smell of sulphur was noted, and Luke Fenner's father declared that he heard the third or emergency whistle signal, though the others failed to detect it. Muffled musketry sounded again, followed by a deep scream, less piercing but even more horrible than those which had preceded it, a kind of throaty, nastily plastic cough or gurgle, whose quality as a scream must have come more from its continuity and psychological import than from its actual acoustic value. Then the flaming thing burst into sight at a point where the Cohen farm ought to lie, and the human cries of desperate and frightened men were heard. Muskets flashed and cracked, and the flaming thing fell to the ground. A second flaming thing appeared, and a shriek of human origin was plainly distinguished. Fenner wrote that he could even gather a few words belched in frenzy. Almighty, protect thy lamb! Then there were more shots, and the second flaming thing fell. After that came silence for about three quarters of an hour at the end of which time little Arthur Fenner, Luke's brother, exclaimed that he saw a red fog going up to the stars from the accursed farm in the distance. No one but the child can testify to this, but Luke admits the significant coincidence implied by the panic of almost convulsive fright which at the same moment arched the backs and stiffened the fur of the three cats then within the room. Five minutes later, a chill wind blew up and the air became suffused with an intolerable stench that only the strong freshness of the sea could have prevented its being noticed by the shore party or by any wakeful souls in the Portuxet village. This stench was nothing which any of the Fenners had ever encountered before, and produced a kind of clutching, amorphous fear beyond that of the tomb of the charnel house. Close upon it came the awful voice which no hapless hearer will ever be able to forget. It thundered out of the sky like a doom, and windows rattled as its echoes died away. It was deep and musical, powerful as a bass organ, but evil as the forbidden books of the Arabs. What it said no man can tell, for it spoke in an unknown tongue, but this is the writing Luke Fenner set down to portray the demoniac intonations. Not till the year 1919 did any soul link this crude transcript with anything else in mortal knowledge. But Charles Ward paled as he recognized what Mirandola had denounced in shudders as the ultimate horror among black magic's incantations. An unmistakable human shout or deep chorused scream seemed to answer this malign wonder from the Kerwin farm, after which the unknown stench grew complex with an added odor equally intolerable. A wailing distinctly different from the scream now burst out and was protracted ululantly in rising and falling paroxysms. At times it became almost articulate, though no auditor could trace any definite words, and at one point it seemed to verge towards the confines of diabolic and hysterical laughter. Then a yell of utter, ultimate fright and stark madness wrenched from scores of human throats, 
a yell which came strong and clear despite the depth from which it must have burst, after which darkness and silence ruled all things. Spirals of acrid smoke ascended to blot out the stars, though no flames appeared and no buildings were observed to be gone or injured on the following day. Toward dawn, two frightened messengers with monstrous and unplaceable odors saturating their clothing knocked at the Fenner door and requested a keg of rum, for which they paid very well indeed. One of them told the family that the affair of Joseph Kerwin was over and that the events of the night were not to be mentioned again. Arrogant as the order seemed, the aspect of him who gave it took away all resentment and lent it a fearsome authority, so that only these furtive letters of Luke Fenner, which he urged his Connecticut relatives to destroy, remained to tell us what was seen and heard. The non-compliance of that relative, whereby the letters were saved after all, has alone kept the matter from a merciful oblivion. Charles Ward had one detail to add as a result of a long canvas of Portuxet residence for ancestral traditions. Old Charles Slocum of that village said that there was known to his grandfather a queer rumour concerning a charred, distorted body found in the fields a week after the death of Joseph Curran was announced. What kept the talk alive was the notion that this body, so far as could be seen in its burnt and twisted condition, was neither thoroughly human nor wholly allied to any animal which Portuxet folk had ever seen or read about. Part 6 Not one man who participated in that terrible raid could ever be induced to say a word concerning it, and every fragment of the vague data which survives comes from those outside the final fighting party. There is something frightful in the care with which these actual raiders destroyed each scrap which bore the least allusion to the matter. Eight sailors had been killed, but although their bodies were not produced, their families were satisfied with the statement that a clash with customs officers had occurred. The same statement also covered the numerous cases of wounds, all of which were extensively bandaged and treated only by Dr. Jabez Bowen, who had accompanied the party. Hardest to explain was the nameless odour clinging to all the raiders, a thing which was discussed for weeks. Of the citizen leaders, Captain Whipple and Moses Brown were most severely hurt, and letters of their wives testify the bewilderment which their reticence and close guarding of their bandages produced. Psychologically, every participant was aged, sobered, and shaken. It is fortunate that they were all strong men of action and simple orthodox religionists, for with more subtle introspectiveness and mental complexity, they would have fared ill indeed. President Manning was the most disturbed, but even he outgrew the darkest shadow and smothered memories in prayers. Every man of those leaders had a stirring part to play in later years, and it is perhaps fortunate that this is so. Little more than a twelve-month afterwards, Captain Whipple led the mob who burnt the revenue ship Gaspy, and in this bold act we may trace one step in the blotting out of unwholesome images. There was delivered to the widow of Joseph Kerwin a sealed leaden coffin of curious design, obviously found ready on the spot when needed, in which she was told her husband's body lay. He had, it was explained, been killed in a customs battle about which it was not politic to give details. More than this, no tongue ever uttered of Joseph Curran's end, and Charles Ward had only a single hint wherewith to construct a theory. This hint was the merest thread, a shaky underscoring of a passage in Jedediah Orne's confiscated letter to Curran, 
as partly copied in Ezra Whedon's handwriting. The copy was found in the possession of Smith's descendants, and we are left to decide whether Whedon gave it to his companion after the end, as a mute clue to the abnormality which had occurred, or whether, as is more probable, Smith had it before, and added the underscoring himself from what he had managed to extract from his friend by shrewd guessing and adroit cross-questioning. The underlined passage is merely this. I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down, by the which I mean any that can in turn call up somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask of the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. In the light of this passage, and reflecting on what last unmentionable alleys a beaten man might try to summon in his direst extremity, Charles Ward may well have wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Kerwin. The deliberate effacement of every memory of the dead man from Providence life and annals was vastly aided by the influence of the raiding leaders. They had not at first meant to be so thorough, and had allowed the widow and her father and child to remain in ignorance of the true conditions. But Captain Tillinghast was an astute man, and soon uncovered enough rumours to whet his horror and cause him to demand that the daughter and granddaughter change their name, burn the library and all remaining papers, and chisel the inscription from the slate slab above Joseph Kerwin's grave. He knew Captain Whipple well, and probably extracted more hints from that bluff mariner and anyone else ever gained respecting the end of the accursed sorcerer. From that time on, the obliteration of Kerwin's memory became increasingly rigid, extending at last by common consent even to the town records and files of the Gazette. It can be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on Oscar Wilde's name for a decade after his disgrace, and in extent only to the fate of that sinful king of Wunazar in Lord Dunsany's tale, whom the gods decided must not only cease to be, but must cease ever to have been. Mr. Tillinghast, as the widow became known after 1772, sold the house in Olney Court and resided with her father in Powers Lane till her death in 1817. The farm at Portuxet, shunned by every living soul, remained to moulder through the years and seemed to decay with unaccountable rapidity. By 1780 only the stone and brickwork were standing, and by 1800 even these had fallen to shapeless heaps. None ventured to pierce the tangled shrubbery on the riverbank behind which the hillside door may have lain, nor did any try to frame a definite image of the scenes amidst which Joseph Kerwin departed from the horrors he had wrought. Only robust old Captain Whipple was heard by alert listeners to mutter once in a while to himself. Pox on that bastard, but he had no business to laugh while he screamed. Twas as though the damned bastard had something up his sleeve. For half a crown I'd burn his goddamn home. End of parts five and six. Chapter two. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. By H.P. Lovecraft. Read by Morgan Scorpion. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Read by Morgan Scorpion Chapter 3 A Search and an Evocation Part 1 Charles Ward, as we have seen, first learned in 1918 of his descent from Joseph Kerwin. 
That he at once took an intense interest in everything pertaining to the bygone mystery is not to be wondered at, for every vague rumour that he had heard of Kerwin now became something vital to himself, in whom flowed Kerwin's blood. No spirited and imaginative genealogist could have done otherwise than begin forthwith an avid and systematic collection of Kerwin data. In his first delvings, there was not the slightest attempt at secrecy, so that even Dr. Lyman hesitates to date the youth's madness from any period before the close of 1919. He talked freely with his family, though his mother was not particularly pleased to own an ancestor like Kerwin, and with the officials of the various museums and libraries he visited. In applying to private families for records thought to be in their possession, he made no concealment of his object and shared the somewhat amused scepticism with which the accounts of the old diarists and letter writers were regarded. He often expressed a keen wonder as to what really had taken place a century and a half before the poor Tuxford farmhouse, whose site he had vainly tried to find, and what Joseph Kerwin really had been. When he came across the Smith diary and archives and encountered the letter from Jedediah Orne, he decided to visit Salem and look up Kerwin's early activities and connections there, which he did during the Easter vacation of 1919. At the Essex Institute, which was well known to him from former sojourns in the glamorous old town of crumbling Puritan gables and clustered Gamble roofs, he was very kindly received and unearthed there a considerable amount of Kerwin data. He found that his ancestor was born in Salem Village, now Danvers, seven miles from town, on the 18th of February, O.S., 1662-3. And that he had run away to sea at the age of 15, not appearing again for nine years, when he returned with the speech, dress and manners of a native Englishman and settled in Salem proper. At that time he had little to do with his family, but spent most of his hours with the curious books he had brought from Europe and the strange chemicals which came for him on ships from England, France and Holland. Certain trips of his into the country were the objects of much local inquisitiveness and were whisperingly associated with vague rumours of fires on the hills at night. Cohen's only close friends had been one Edward Hutchinson of Salem Village and one Simon Orne of Salem. With these men he was often seen in conference about the common and visits among them were by no means infrequent. Hutchinson had a house well out toward the woods, and it was not altogether liked by sensitive people because of the sounds heard there at night. He was said to entertain strange visitors, and the lights seen from his windows were not always of the same color. The knowledge he displayed concerning long-dead persons and long-forgotten events was considered distinctly unwholesome, and he disappeared about the time the witchcraft panic began, never to be heard from again. At that time, Joseph Cohen also departed, but his settlement in Providence was soon learned of. Simon Orne lived in Salem until 1720, when his failure to grow visibly old began to excite attention. He thereafter disappeared, though 30 years later his precise counterpart and self-styled son turned up to claim his property. The claim was allowed on the strength of documents in Simon Orne's known hand, and Jedediah Orne continued to dwell in Salem till 1771, when certain letters from Providence citizens to the Reverend Thomas Barnard and others brought about his quiet removal to parts unknown. Certain documents by and about all of the strange characters were available at the Essex Institute, the courthouse and the registry of deeds, and included both harmless commonplaces such as land titles and bills of sale and furtive fragments of a more provocative nature. 
There were four or five unmistakable allusions to them on the witchcraft trial records, as when one Hepzibah Lawson swore on July 10th, 1692, at the court of Oyer and Termine under Judge Haythorne, that 40 witches and the black man were wont to meet in the woods behind Mr. Hutchinson's house, and one Amity Howe declared at a session of August the 8th before Judge Gedney that Mr. G.B., Reverend George Burroughs, on that night put the devil his mark upon Bridget S., Jonathan A., Simon O., Deliverance W., Joseph C., Susan P., Mehitable C., and Deborah B. Then there was a catalogue of Hutchinson's uncanny library as found after his disappearance, and an unfinished manuscript in his handwriting, couched in a cipher none could read. Ward had a photostatic copy of this manuscript made, and began to work casually on the cipher as soon as it was delivered to him. After the following August, his labours on the cipher became intense and feverish, and there is reason to believe, from his speech and conduct, that he hit upon the key before October or November. He never stated, though, whether or not he had succeeded. But of greatest immediate interest was the Orne material. It took Ward only a short time to prove from identity of penmanship a thing he had already considered established from the text of the letter to Kerwin, namely, that Simon Orne and his supposed son were one and the same person. As Orne had said to his correspondent, it was hardly safe to live too long in Salem. Hence he resorted to a 30-year sojourn abroad and did not return to claim his lands except as a representative of a new generation. Orne had apparently been careful to destroy most of his correspondence, but the citizens who took action in 1771 found and preserved a few letters and papers which excited their wonder. There were cryptic formulae and diagrams in his and other hands which Ward now either copied with care or had photographed and one extremely mysterious letter in a chirography that the searcher recognized from items in the Registry of Deeds as positively Joseph Kerwin's. This Kerwin letter, though undated as to the year, was evidently not the one in answer to which Orne had written the confiscated missive, and from internal evidence Ward placed it not much later than 1750. It may not be amiss to give the text in full as a sample of the style of one whose history was so dark and terrible. The recipient is addressed as Simon, but a line, whether drawn by Kerwin or Orne, Ward could not tell, is run through the word. Providence, 1st of May. Brother, my honoured ancient friend, due respects and earnest wishes to him whom we serve for your eternal power. I am just come upon that which you ought to know concerning the matter of the last extremity and what to do regarding it. I am not disposed to follow you in going away on account of my years, for providence hath not ye sharpness of ye bay in hunting out uncommon things and bringing to trial. I am tied up in ships and goods, and could not do as you did. Besides the which, my farm at Portuxet hath under it what you know, and would not wait for my coming back as an other. But I am unready for hard fortunes, as I have told you, and have long worked upon ye way of getting back after ye last. I last night struck on you words that bring up Yogg-Sothoth, and saw for your first time that face spoke of by Ibn Shakabeo in ye, and it said that ye third psalm in ye Liber Damnatus holds ye clavicle. With sun in fifth house, Saturn in trine, draw ye pentagram of fire, and say ye ninth verse thrice. 
This verse repeat each root mass and hallows eve, and ye thing will breed in ye outside spheres. And of ye seed of old shall one be born who shall look back, though knowing not what he seeks. Yet will this avail nothing if there be no air, and if the salts, or the way to make the salts, be not ready for his hand. And here I will own, I have not taken needed steps, nor found much. Your process is plaguy hard to come near, and it used up such a store of specimens. I am hard put to it to get enough, notwithstanding the sailors I have from your Indies. You people about are become curious, but I can stand them off. Your gentry are worse than the populace, being more circumstantial in their acts, and more believed in what they tell. That Parson and Mr. Merritt have talked some, I am fearful, but no thing so far is dangerous. Ye chemical substances are easy of getting, there being two good chemists in town, Dr. Bowen and Sam Carew. I am following out what Borella saith, and have help in ye Abdul al-Hazred in his seventh book. Whatever I get, you shall have, and in ye meanwhile do not neglect to make use of your words I have here given. I have them right, but if you desire to see him, employ the writings on your piece of that I am putting in this packet. Say your verses every rood mass and hallows eve, and if ye line one out not, one shall be in years to come that shall look back and use what salts or stuff for salts you shall leave him. Job 14, 14 I rejoice you are again at Salem, and hope I may see you not long hence. I have a good stallion, and I'm thinking of getting a coach, there being one, Mr. Merritt's, in Providence already, though your roads are bad. If you are disposed to travel, do not pass me by. From Boston take you post-road through Dedham, Wrentham, and Attleboro. Good taverns being at all these towns. Stop at Mr. Balcombe's in Wrentham, where your beds are finer than Mr. Hatch's, but eat at ye other house, for their cook is better. Turn in to Providence by Patucket Falls, and ye rode past Mr. Sale's tavern. My house opposite Mr. Epinatus Olney's tavern off ye town street, first on ye north side of Olney Court, distance from Boston Stone about forty-four miles. Sir, I am ye old and true friend and servant in Almonson Metroton, Josephus C. to Mr. Simon Orne, Williams Lane in Salem. This letter, oddly enough, was what first gave Ward the exact location of Kerwin's Providence home, for none of the records encountered up to that time had been at all specific. The discovery was doubly striking because it indicated as the newer Kerwin house, built in 1761 on the site of the old, a dilapidated building still standing in Olney Court and well known to Ward in his antiquarian rambles over Stampers Hill. The place was indeed only a few squares from his own home on the Great Hill's higher ground, and was now the abode of a Negro family much esteemed for occasional washing, house-cleaning and furnace-tending services. To find in distant Salem such sudden proof of the significance of this familiar rookery in his own family history was a highly impressive thing to Ward, and he resolved to explore the place immediately upon his return. The more mystical phases of the latter, which he took to be some extravagant kind of symbolism, frankly baffled him, though he noted with a thrill of curiosity that the biblical passage referred to, Job 14, 14, was the familiar verse, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change come.
part two. Young Ward came home in a state of pleasant excitement and spent the following Saturday in a long and exhaustive study of the house in Olney Court. The place, now crumbling with age, had never been a mansion, but was a modest two-and-a-half-story wooden townhouse of the familiar Providence colonial type, with plain peaked roof, large central chimney, and artistically carved doorway with rayed fanlight, triangular pediment, and trim Doric pilasters. It had suffered but little alteration externally, and Ward felt he was gazing on something very close to the sinister matters of his quest. The present Negro inhabitants were known to him, and he was very courteously shown about the interior by old Arthur and his stout wife, Hannah. Here, there was more change than the outside indicated, and Ward saw with regret that fully half of the fine scroll and urn overmantels and shell-carved cupboard linings were gone, whilst most of the fine wainscoting and burlection moulding was marked, hacked and gouged, or covered up altogether with cheap wallpaper. In general, the survey did not yield as much as Ward had somehow expected, but it was at least exciting to stand within the ancestral walls which had housed such a man of horror as Joseph Cohen. He saw with a thrill that a monogram had been very carefully effaced from the ancient brass knocker. From then until after the close of school, Ward spent his time on the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher and the accumulation of local Cohen data. The former still proved unyielding, but of the latter he obtained so much and so many clues to similar data elsewhere that he was ready by July to make a trip to New London and New York to consult old letters whose presence in those places was indicated. This trip was very fruitful, for it brought him the Fenner letters with their terrible description of the poor toxic farmhouse raid and the Nightingale Talbot letters in which he learned of the portrait painted on a panel of the Cohen Library. This matter of the portrait interested him particularly, since he would have given much to know just what Joseph Kerwin looked like, and he decided to make a second search of the house in Olney Court to see if there might not be some trace of the ancient features beneath peeling coats of later paint or layers of mouldy wallpaper. Early in August that search took place, and Ward went carefully over the walls of every room sizable enough to have been by any possibility the library of the evil builder. He paid especial attention to the large panels of such overmantels as still remained, and was keenly excited after about an hour, when on a broad area above the fireplace in a spacious ground-floor room, he became certain that the surface brought out by the peeling of several coats of paint was sensibly darker than any ordinary interior paint or the wood beneath it was likely to have been. A few more careful tests with a thin knife, and he knew that he had come upon an oil portrait of great extent. With truly scholarly restraint, the youth did not risk the damage which an immediate attempt to uncover the hidden picture with the knife might have been, but just retired from the scene of his discovery to enlist expert help. In three days, he returned with an artist of long experience, Mr. Walter C. Dwight, whose studio is near the foot of College Hill, and that accomplished restorer of paintings set to work at once with proper methods and chemical substances. Old Arthur and his wife were duly excited over their strange visitors and were properly reimbursed for this invasion of their domestic hearth. As day by day the work of restoration progressed, Charles Ward looked on with growing interest at the lines and shades gradually unveiled after their long oblivion. Dwight had begun at the bottom. 
Hence, since the picture was a three-quarter length one, the face did not come out for some time. It was meanwhile seen that the subject was a spare, well-shaped man with dark blue coat, embroidered waistcoat, black satin small clothes and white silk stockings, seated in a carved chair against the background of a window with wharves and ships beyond. When the head came out, it was observed to bear a neat Albemarle wig, and to possess a thin, calm, undistinguished face, which seemed somehow familiar to both Ward and the artist. Only at the very last, though, did the restorer and his client begin to gasp with astonishment at the details of that lean, pallid visage, and to recognize with a touch of awe the dramatic trick which heredity had played? For it took the final bath of oil and the final stroke of the delicate scraper to bring out fully the expression which centuries had hidden, and to confront the bewildered Charles Dexter Ward, dweller in the past, with his own living features in the countenance of his horrible great-great-great-grandfather. Ward brought his parents to see the marvel he had uncovered, and his father at once determined to purchase the picture despite its execution on stationary panelling. The resemblance to the boy, despite an appearance of rather great age, was marvellous, and it could be seen that through some trick of atavism the physical contours of Joseph Kerwin had found a precise duplication after a century and a half. Mrs. Ward's resemblance to her ancestor was not at all marked, though she could recall relatives who had some of the facial characteristics shared by her son and by the bygone Kerwin. She did not relish the discovery, and told her husband that he had better burn the picture instead of bringing it home. There was, she averred, something unwholesome about it, not only intrinsically, but in its very resemblance to Charles. Mr. Ward, however, was a practical man of power and affairs, a cotton manufacturer with extensive mills at River Point in the Portuxet Valley, and not one to listen to feminine scruples. The picture impressed him mightily with its likeness to his son, and he believed the boy deserved it as a present. In this opinion, it is needless to say, Charles most heartily concurred, and a few days later Mr. Ward located the owner of the house, a small, rodent-featured person with a guttural accent, and obtained the whole mantle and overmantle, bearing the picture at a curtly fixed price which cut short the impending torrent of unctuous haggling. It now remained to take off the panelling and remove it to the ward home, where provisions were made for its thorough restoration and installation with an electric mock fireplace in Charles's third-floor study or library. To Charles was left the task of superintending this removal, and on the 28th of August he accompanied two expert workmen from the Crooker Decorating Firm to the house in Olney Court, where the mantel and portrait bearing over mantel were detached with great care and precision for transportation in the company's motor truck. There was left a space of exposed brickwork marking the chimney's course, and in this young ward observed a cubical recess about a foot square, which must have lain directly behind the head of the portrait. Curious as to what such a space might mean or contain, the youth approached and looked within, finding beneath the deep coatings of dust and soot some loose yellowed papers, a crude thick copy-book, and a few mouldering textile shreds which may have formed the ribbon binding the rest together. Blowing away the bulk of the dirt and cinders, he took up the book and looked at the bold inscription on its cover. It was in a hand which he had learned to recognize at the Essex Institute, and proclaimed the volume as the Journal and Notes of Joseph Kerwin, Gentleman of Providence Plantations, late of Salem.
Excited beyond measure by his discovery, Ward showed the book to the two curious workmen beside him. Their testimony is absolute as to the nature and genuineness of the finding, and Dr. Willett relies on them to help establish his theory that the youth was not mad when he began his major eccentricities. All the other papers were likewise in Kerwin's handwriting, and one of them seemed especially portentous because of its inscription. To him who shall come after, and how he may get beyond time and ye spheres. Another was in a cipher, the same, Ward hoped, as the Hutchinson cipher which had hitherto baffled him. A third, and here the searcher rejoiced, seemed to be a key to the cipher, whilst the fourth and fifth were addressed respectively to Edward Hutchinson, Armiger, and Jedediah Orne, Esquire, or their heir or heirs, or those representing them. The sixth and last was inscribed, Joseph Cohen, his life and travels between the years 1678 and 1687, of whither he voyaged, where he stayed, whom he saw, and what he learnt. Part 3 We have now reached the point from which the more academic school of alienists date Charles Ward's madness. Upon his discovery, the youth had looked immediately at a few of the inner pages of the book and manuscripts, and had evidently seen something which impressed him tremendously. Indeed, in showing the titles to the workmen, he appeared to guard the text itself with peculiar care, and to labour under a perturbation for which even the antiquarian and genealogical significance of the find could hardly account. Upon returning home, he broke the news with an almost embarrassed air, as if he wished to convey an idea of its supreme importance without having to exhibit the evidence itself. He did not even show the titles to his parents, but simply told them, that he had found some documents in Joseph Cohen's handwriting, mostly in cipher, which would have to be studied very carefully before yielding up their true meaning. It is unlikely that he would have shown what he did to the workmen had it not been for their unconcealed curiosity. As it was, he doubtless wished to avoid any display of peculiar reticence which would increase their discussion of the matter. That night, Charles Ward sat up in his room reading the newfound book and papers, and when day came, he did not desist. His meals, on his urgent request when his mother called to see what was amiss, were sent up to him, and in the afternoon he appeared only briefly when the men came to install the Cohen picture and mantelpiece in his study. The next night he slept in snatches in his clothes, meanwhile wrestling feverishly with the unravelling of the cipher manuscript. In the morning, his mother saw that he was at work on the photostatic copy of the Hutchinson cipher, which he had frequently shown her before, but in response to her query he said that the Kerwin key could not be applied to it. That afternoon he abandoned his work and watched the men fascinatedly as they finished their installation of the picture with its woodwork above a cleverly realistic electric log, setting the mock fireplace and overmantel a little out from the north wall as if a chimney existed, and boxing in the sides with panelling to match the rooms. The front panel holding the picture was sawn and hinged to allow cupboard space behind it. After the workman went, he moved his work into the study and sat down before it with his eyes half on the cipher and half on the portrait, which stared back at him like a year-adding and century-recalling mirror. His parents, subsequently recalling his conduct at this period, give interesting details anent the policy of concealment which he practised. Before servants, he seldom hid any paper which he might be studying, since he rightly assumed that Cohen's intricate and archaic chirography would be too much for them. 
With his parents, however, he was more circumspect, and unless the manuscript in question were a cipher, or a mere mass of cryptic symbols and unknown ideographs, as that entitled to him who shall come after, etc., seemed to be, he would cover it with some convenient paper until his caller had departed. At night he kept the papers under lock and key in an antique cabinet of his, where he also placed them whenever he left the room. He soon resumed fairly regular hours and habits, except that his long walks and other outside interests seemed to cease. The opening of school, where he now began his senior year, seemed a great bore to him, and he frequently asserted his determination never to bother with college. He had, he said, important special investigations to make, which would provide him with more avenues towards knowledge and the humanities than any university which the world could boast. Naturally, only one who had always been more or less studious, eccentric and solitary could have pursued this course for many days without attracting notice. Ward, however, was constitutionally a scholar and a hermit. Hence his parents were less surprised than regretful at the close confinement and secrecy he adopted. At the same time, both his father and mother thought it odd that he would show them no scrap of his treasure trove, nor give any connected account of such data as he had deciphered. This reticence he explained away as due to a wish to wait until he might announce some connected revelation. But as the weeks passed without further disclosures, there began to grow up between the youth and his family a kind of constraint, intensified in his mother's case by her manifest disapproval of all Kerwin delvings. During October, Ward began visiting the libraries again, but no longer for the antiquarian matter of his former days. Witchcraft and magic, occultism and demonology were what he sought now, and when Providence sources proved unfruitful, he would take the train for Boston and tap the wealth of the great library in Copley Square, the Widner Library at Harvard, or the Zion Research Library in Brooklyn, where certain rare works on biblical subjects are available. He bought extensively and fitted up a whole additional set of shelves in his study for newly acquired works on uncanny subjects, while during the Christmas holidays he made a round of out-of-town trips, including one to Salem to consult certain records at the Essex Institute. About the middle of January 1920, there entered Ward's bearing an element of triumph which he did not explain, and he was no more found at work upon the Hutchinson cipher. Instead, he inaugurated a dual policy of chemical research and record scanning, fitting up for the one a laboratory in the unused attic of the house, and for the latter haunting all the sources of vital statistics in Providence. Local dealers in drugs and scientific supplies, later questioned, gave astonishingly queer and meaningless catalogues of the substances and instruments he purchased. But clerks at the State House, the City Hall and the various libraries agree as to the definite object of his second interest. He was searching intensely and feverishly for the grave of Joseph Kerwin, from whose slate slab an older generation had so wisely blotted the name. Little by little there grew upon the Ward family the conviction that something was wrong. Charles had had freaks and changes of minor interests before, but this growing secrecy and absorption in strange pursuits was unlike even him. His schoolwork was the merest pretense, and although he failed in no test, it could be seen that the older application had all vanished. He had other concernments now, and when not in his new laboratory with a score of obsolete alchemical books, could be found either poring over old burial records downtown or glued to his volumes of occult lore in his study, 
where the startlingly, one almost fancied increasingly, similar features of Joseph Cohen stared blandly at him from the great overmantel on the north wall. Late in March, Ward added to his archive searching a ghoulish series of rambles about the various ancient cemeteries of the city. The cause appeared later, when it was learned from City Hall clerks that he had probably found an important clue. His quest had suddenly shifted from the grave of Joseph Cohen to that of one Naphtali Field, and this shift was explained when, going over the files that he had been over, the investigators actually found a fragmentary record of Cohen's burial which had escaped the general obliteration, and which stated that the curious leaden coffin had been interred ten foot south and five foot west of Naphtali Field's grave in... The lack of a specified burying ground in the surviving entry greatly complicated the search, and Naphtali Field's grave seemed as elusive as that of Kerwin. But here no systematic effacement had existed, and one might reasonably be expected to stumble on the stone itself, even if its record had perished. Hence the rambles, from which St. John's, the former King's churchyard, and the ancient congregational burying ground in the midst of Swan Point Cemetery were excluded, since other statistics had shown that the only Naphtali Field, oblate 1729, whose grave could have been meant, had been a Baptist. End of Chapter 3, Parts 1, 2 and 3 Of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward By Howard Phillips Lovecraft Read by Morgan Scorpion The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Chapter 3, Parts 4 to 6 Part 4 it was toward May when Dr. Willett, at the request of the senior ward, and fortified with all the Kerwin data which the family had gleaned from Charles in his non-secretive days, talked with the young man. The interview was of little value or conclusiveness, for Willett felt at every moment that Charles was thorough master of himself and in touch with matters of real importance. But it at least forced the secretive youth to offer some rational explanation of his recent demeanour of a pallid, impassive type, not easily showing embarrassment, Ward seemed quite ready to discuss his pursuits, though not to reveal their object. He stated that the papers of his ancestor had contained some remarkable secrets of early scientific knowledge, for the most part in cipher, of an apparent scope comparable only to the discoveries of Friar Bacon, and perhaps surpassing even those. They were, however, meaningless, except when correlated with a body of learning now wholly obsolete, so that their immediate presentation to a world equipped only with modern science would rob them of all impressiveness and dramatic significance. To take their vivid place in the history of human thought, they must first be correlated by one familiar with the background out of which they evolved, and to this task of correlation Ward was now devoting himself. He was seeking to acquire as fast as possible those neglected arts of old which a true interpreter of the Cohen data must possess, and hoped in time to make a full announcement and presentation of the utmost interest to mankind and to the world of thought. Not even Einstein, he declared, could more profoundly revolutionize the current conception of things. As to his graveyard search, whose object he freely admitted, but the details of whose progress he did not relate, 
He said he had reason to think that Joseph Kerwin's mutilated headstone bore certain mystic symbols carved from directions in his will and ignorantly spared by those who had effaced the name, which were absolutely essential to the final solution of his cryptic system. Kerwin, he believed, had wished to guard his secret with care and had consequently distributed the data in an exceedingly curious fashion. When Dr. Willett asked to see the mystic documents, Ward displayed much reluctance and tried to put him off with such things as photostatic copies of the Hutchinson cipher and Orn formulae and diagrams, but finally showed him the exteriors of some of the real Kerwin finds, the journal and notes, the cipher, title in cipher also, and the formula-filled message to him who shall come after, and let him glance inside such as were in obscure characters. He also opened the diary at a page carefully selected for its innocuousness and gave Willett a glimpse of Kerwin's connected handwriting in English. The doctor noted very closely the crabbed and complicated letters and the general aura of the 17th century which clung round both penmanship and style despite the writer's survival into the 18th century and became quickly certain that the document was genuine. The text itself was relatively trivial and Willett recalled only a fragment. Wednesday, 16th of October, 1754. My sloop, the Wakeful, this day put in from London with 20 new men picked up in the Indies, Spaniards from Martinico and two Dutchmen from Suriname. The Dutchmen are like to desert from having heard somewhat ill of these ventures, but I will see to ye inducing of them to stay. For Mr. Knight Dexter of ye bay and book 120 pieces camblets, a hundred pieces assorted camblatines, twenty pieces blue duffels, a hundred pieces shalloons, fifty pieces calamancos, three hundred pieces each, shensoy and humhums. For Mr. Green at ye elephant, fifty galleon kittles, twenty warming pans, fifteen bake kittles, ten pair smoking tongues. For Mr. Perigo, one set of awls. For Mr. Nightingale, fifty reams prime foolscap. Sage Sabbath, thrice last night, but none appeared. I must hear more from Mr. H. in Transylvania, though it is hard reaching him, and exceeding strange he cannot give me the use of what he hath so well used these hundred years. Simon hath not writ these five weeks, though I expect soon hearing from him. When upon reaching this point Dr. Willett turned the leaf, he was quickly checked by Ward, who almost snatched the book from his grasp. All that the doctor had a chance to see on the newly opened page was a brief pair of sentences, but these, strangely enough, lingered tenacious in his memory. They ran. Ye verse from Liber Damnatus being spoke five rudmas and four hallows eve, I am hopeful ye thing is breeding outside ye spheres. It will draw one who is to come, if I can make sure he shall be, and he shall think on past things and look back through all ye years against ye which I must have ready ye salts or that to make em with. Willet saw no more. But somehow this small glimpse gave a new and vague terror to the painted features of Joseph Kerwin, which stared blandly down from the overmantel. Even after that he entertained the odd fancy, which his medical skill of course assured him was only a fancy, that the eyes of the portrait had a sort of wish, if not an actual tendency, to follow young Charles Ward as he moved about the room. He stopped before leaving to study the picture closely, marvelling at its resemblance to Charles, and memorising every minute detail of the cryptical, colourless face, even down to a slight scar or pit in the smooth brow above the right eye. 
Cosmo Alexander, he decided, was a painter worthy of the Scotland that produced Rayburn, and a teacher worthy of his illustrious pupil, Gilbert Stuart. Assured by the doctor that Charles's mental health was in no danger, but that, on the other hand, he was engaged in researches which might prove of real importance, the wards were more lenient than they might otherwise have been when, during the following June, the youth made positive his refusal to attend college. He had, he declared, studies of much more vital importance to pursue, and intimated a wish to go abroad the following year in order to avail himself of certain sources of data not existing in America. The senior ward, while denying his latter wish as absurd for a boy of only 18, acquiesced regarding the university, so that after a none too brilliant graduation from the Moses Brown School, there ensued for Charles a three-year period of intensive occult study and graveyard searching. He became recognized as an eccentric and dropped even more completely from the sight of his family's friends than he had been before, keeping close to his work and only occasionally making trips to other cities to consult obscure records. Once he went south to talk to a strange mulatto who dwelt in a swamp and about whom a newspaper had printed a curious article. Again, he sought a small village in the Adirondacks, whence reports of certain odd ceremonial practices had come but still his parents forbade him the trip to the old world which he desired. Coming of age in April 1923, and having previously inherited a small competence from his maternal grandfather, Ward determined at last to take the European trip hitherto denied him. Of his proposed itinerary he would say nothing, save that the needs of his studies would carry him to many places, but he promised to write to his parents fully and faithfully. When they saw he could not be dissuaded, they ceased all opposition and helped as best they could, so that in June the young man sailed for Liverpool with the farewell blessings of his father and mother, who accompanied him to Boston and waved him out of sight from the White Star Pier in Charlestown. Letters soon told of his safe arrival and of his securing good quarters in Great Russell Street, London, where he proposed to stay, shunning all family friends till he had exhausted the resources of the British Museum in a certain direction. Of his daily life he wrote by little, for there was little to write. Study and experiment consumed all his time, and he mentioned a laboratory which he had established in one of his rooms. That he said nothing of antiquarian rambles in the glamorous old city, with its luring skyline of ancient domes and steeples, and its tangles of roads and alleys whose mystic convolutions and sudden vistas alternately beckon and surprise, was taken by his parents as a good index of the degree to which his new interests had engrossed his mind. In June 1924, a brief note told of his departure for Paris, to which he had before made one or two flying trips for material in the Bibliothèque Nationale. For three months thereafter, he sent only postal cards, giving an address in the Rue Saint-Jacques and referring to a special search among rare manuscripts in the library of an unnamed private collector. He avoided acquaintances, and no tourists brought back reports of having seen him. Then came a silence, and in October the wards received a picture card from Prague, Czechoslovakia, stating that Charles was in that ancient town for the purpose of conferring with a certain very aged man, supposed to be the last living possessor of some very curious medieval information. He gave an address in the Neustadt and announced no more till the following January, 
when he dropped several cards from Vienna, telling of his passage through that city on the way toward a more easterly region, whither one of his correspondents and fellow delvers into the occult had invited him. The next card was from Klausenberg in Transylvania, and told of Ward's progress towards his destination. He was going to visit a Baron Ferranxi, whose estate lay in the mountains east of Rakus, and was to be addressed at Rakus in the care of that nobleman. Another card from Rakus a week later, saying that his host's carriage had met him and that he was leaving the village for the mountains, was his last message for a considerable time. Indeed, he didn't reply to his parents' frequent letters until May, when he wrote to discourage the plan of his mother for a meeting in London, Paris or Rome during the summer, when the elder wards were planning to travel to Europe. His researches, he said, were such that he could not leave his present quarters, while the situation of Baron Ferenczi's castle did not favour visits. It was on a crag in the dark wooded mountains, and the region was so shunned by the country folk that normal people could not help feeling ill at ease. Moreover, the Baron was not a person likely to appeal to correct and conservative New England gentlefolk. His aspect and manners had idiosyncrasies, and his age was so great as to be disquieting. It would be better, Charles said, if his parents would wait for his return to Providence, which could scarcely be far distant. That return did not, however, take place until May 1926, when after a few heralding cards, the young wanderer quietly slipped into New York on the Homeric and traversed the long miles to Providence by motor coach, eagerly drinking in the green rolling hills and fragrant blossoming orchards and the white steepled towns of Vernal, Connecticut his first taste of ancient New England in nearly four years. When the coach crossed the Porkatuck and entered Rhode Island amidst the fairy goldenness of a late spring afternoon, his heart beat with quickened force, and the entry to Providence along Reservoir and Elmwood Avenues was a breathless and wonderful thing, despite the depths of forbidden law to which he had delved. At the high square where broad, Waybosset and Empire Streets join, he saw before and below him in the fire of sunset the pleasant, remembered houses and domes and steeples of the old town, and his head swam curiously as the vehicle rolled down to the terminal behind the Biltmore, bringing into view the great dome and soft, roof-pierced greenery of the ancient hill across the river, and the tall colonial spire of the First Baptist Church limned pink in the magic evening against the fresh springtime verdure of its precipitous background. Old Providence. It was this place and the mysterious forces of its long, continuous history which had brought him into being and which had drawn him back toward marvels and secrets whose boundaries no prophet might fix. Here lay the arcana, wondrous or dreadful as the case may be, for which all his years of travel and application had been preparing him. A taxicab whirled him through Post Office Square with its glimpse of the river, the old market house and the head of the bay, and up the steep curved slope of Waterman Street to Prospect, where the vast gleaming dome and sunset-flushed ionic columns of the Christian Science Church beckoned northward. Then eight squares past the fine old estates his childish eyes had known, and the quaint brick sidewalks so often trodden by his youthful feet. And at last, the little white overtaken farmhouse on the right, on the left the classic Adam porch and stately facade of the great brick house where he was born. It was twilight, and Charles Dexter Ward had come home. Five. 
A school of alienists, slightly less academic than Dr. Lyman's, assigned towards European trip, the beginning of his true madness. Admitting that he was sane when he started, they believe that his conduct upon returning implies a disastrous change. But even to this claim, Dr. Willett refuses to concede. There was, he insists, something later, and the queerness of the youth at this stage he attributes to the practice of rituals learned abroad. Odd enough things, to be sure, but by no means implying mental aberration on the part of their celebrant. Ward himself, though visibly aged and hardened, was still normal in his general reactions, and in several talks with Dr. Willett, displayed a balance which no madman, even an incipient one, could feign continuously for long. What elicited the notion of insanity at this period were the sounds heard at all hours from Ward's attic laboratory, in which he kept himself most of the time. There were chantings and repetitions, and thunderous declamations in uncanny rhythms, and although these sounds were always in Ward's own voice, there was something in the quality of that voice, and the accents of the formulae it pronounced, which could not but chill the blood of every hearer. It was noticed that Nig, the venerable and beloved black cat of the household, bristled and arched his back perceptibly when certain of the tones were heard. The odours occasionally wafted from the laboratory were likewise exceedingly strange. Sometimes they were very noxious, but more often they were aromatic with a haunting, elusive quality which seemed to have the power of inducing fantastic images. People who smelled them had a tendency to glimpse momentarily mirages of enormous vistas, with strange hills or endless avenues of sphinxes and hippogriffs stretching off into infinite distance. Ward did not resume his old-time rambles, but applied himself diligently to the strange books he had brought home, and to equally strange delvings within his quarters, explaining that European sources had greatly enlarged the possibilities of his work, and promising great revelations in the years to come. His older aspect increased to a startling degree his resemblance to the Cohen portrait in his library, and Dr. Willett would often pause by the latter after a call, marvelling at the virtual identity, and reflecting that only the small pit above the picture's right eye now remained to differentiate the long-dead wizard from the living youth. These calls of Willett's, undertaken at the request of the senior wards, were curious affairs. Ward at no time repulsed the doctor, but the latter saw that he could never reach the young man's inner psychology. Frequently he noticed peculiar things about. Little wax images of grotesque design on the shelves or tables, and the half-erased remnants of circles, triangles and pentagrams in chalk or charcoal on the cleared central space of the large room. And always in the night those rhythms and incantations thundered, till it became very difficult to keep servants or suppress furtive talk of Charles's madness. In January 1927, a peculiar incident occurred. One night about midnight, as Charles was chanting a ritual whose weird cadence echoed unpleasantly through the house below, there came a sudden gust of chill wind from the bay, and a faint, obscure trembling of the earth which everyone in the neighbourhood noted. At the same time, the cat exhibited phenomenal traces of fright, while dogs bayed for as much as a mile around. This was the prelude to a sharp thunderstorm, anomalous for the season, which brought with it such a crash that Mr. and Mrs. Ward believed the house had been struck. They rushed upstairs to see what damage had been done, but Charles met them at the door to the attic, pale, 
resolute and portentous, with an almost fearsome combination of triumph and seriousness on his face. He assured them that the house had not really been struck, and that the storm would be soon over. They paused, and looking through a window saw that he was indeed right, for the lightning flashed farther and farther off, whilst the trees ceased to bend in the strange frigid gust from the water. The thunder sank to a sort of dull mumbling chuckle, and finally died away. Stars came out, and the stamp of triumph on Charles Ward's face crystallized into a very singular expression. For two months or more after this incident, Ward was less confined than usual to his laboratory. He exhibited a curious interest in the weather, and made odd inquiries about the date of the spring thawing of the ground. One night late in March he left the house after midnight, and did not return till almost morning, when his mother, being wakeful, heard a rumbling motor draw up to the carriage entrance. Muffled oaths could be distinguished, and Mrs. Ward, rising and going to the window, saw four dark figures carrying a long, heavy box from a truck at Charles's direction, and carrying it within by the side door. She heard laboured breathing and ponderous footfalls on the stairs, and finally a dull thumping in the attic, after which the footfalls descended again, and the four reappeared outside and drove off in their truck. The next day Charles resumed his strict attic seclusion, drawing down the dark shades of his laboratory windows and appearing to be working on some metal substance. He would open the door to no one, and steadfastly refused all proffered food. About noon a wrenching sound followed by a terrible cry and a fall were heard, but when Mrs. Ward rapped at the door her son at length answered faintly and told her that nothing had gone amiss. The hideous and indescribable stench now welling out was absolutely harmless and unfortunately necessary. Solitude was the one prime essential, and he would appear later for dinner. That afternoon, after the conclusion of some odd hissing sounds which came from behind the locked portal, he did finally appear, wearing an extremely haggard aspect and forbidding anyone to enter the laboratory upon any pretext. This indeed proved the beginning of a new policy of secrecy, for never afterward was any other person permitted to visit either the mysterious gout workroom or the adjacent storeroom which he cleaned out, furnished roughly, and added to his inviolable private domain as a sleeping apartment. Here he lived, with books brought up from his library beneath, till the time he purchased the Portuxet bungalow and moved to it all his scientific effects. In the evening, Charles secured the paper before the rest of the family, and damaged part of it through an apparent accident. Later on, Dr. Willett, having fixed the date from statements by various members of the household, looked up an intact copy at the journal office, and found that in the destroyed section the following small item had occurred. Nocturnal diggers surprised in North Burial Ground. Robert Hart, night watchman at the North Burial Ground, this morning discovered a party of several men with a motor truck in the oldest part of the cemetery, but apparently frightened them off before they had accomplished whatever their object may have been. The discovery took place at about four o'clock, when Hart's attention was distracted by the sound of a motor outside his shelter. Investigating, he saw a large trunk on the main drive several rods away, but could not reach it before the noise of his feet on the gravel had revealed his approach. The men hastily placed a large box in the truck and drove away toward the street before they could be overtaken, and since no known grave was disturbed, Hart believes that this box was an object which they wished to bury. 
The diggers must have been at work for a long while before detection, for Hart found an enormous hole dug at a considerable distance back from the roadway in the lot of Amasa Field, where most of the old stones have long ago disappeared. The hole, a place as large and deep as a grave, was empty, and did not coincide with any interment mentioned in the cemetery records. Sergeant Riley of the second station viewed the spot and gave the opinion that the hole was dug by bootleggers rather gruesomely and ingeniously seeking a safe cache for liquor in a place not likely to be disturbed. In reply to questions, Hart said he thought the escaping truck had headed up Rochambeau Avenue, though he could not be sure. During the next few days, Charles Ward was seldom seen by his family. Having added sleeping quarters to his attic realm, he kept closely to himself there, ordering food brought to the door and not taking it in until after the servant had gone away. The droning of monotonous formulae and the chanting of bizarre rhythms recurred at intervals, while at other times occasional listeners could detect the sound of tinkling glass, hissing chemicals, running water or roaring gas flames. Odors of the most unplaceable quality, wholly unlike any before noted, hung at times around the door, and the air of tension observable in the young recluse whenever he did venture briefly forth was such as to excite the keenest speculation. Once he made a hasty trip to the Athenaeum for a book he required, and again he hired a messenger to fetch him a highly obscure volume from Boston. Suspense was written portentously over the whole situation, and both the family and Dr. Willett confessed themselves wholly at a loss what to do or think about it. 6. Then, on the 15th of April, a strange development occurred. While nothing appeared to grow different in kind, there was certainly a very terrible difference in degree. And Dr. Willett somehow attaches great significance to the change. The day was Good Friday, a circumstance of which the servants made much, but which others quite naturally dismiss as an irrelevant coincidence. Late in the afternoon, young Ward began repeating a certain formula in a singularly loud voice, at the same time burning some substance so pungent that its fumes escaped over the entire house. The formula was so plainly audible in the hall outside the locked door that Mrs. Ward could not help memorizing it as she waited and listened anxiously, and later on she was able to write it down at Dr. Willett's request. It ran as follows, and experts have told Dr. Willett that its very close analogue can be found in the mystic writings of Eliphas Levi, that cryptic soul who went through a crack in the forbidden door and glimpsed the frightful vistas of the void beyond. Per Adonai Elohim, Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Sabaoth, Metaton on Aglamathon, Verbum Pythonicum, Mysterium Salamandre, Conventus Silvorum, Antret Nomorum, Demonia Coeli God, Almonson, Gibo, Jehoshua, Evam, Zariat, Natmik, Veni, Veni, Veni. This had been going on for two hours without change or intermission, when over all the neighborhood a pandemoniac howling of dogs set in. The extent of this howling can be judged from the space it received in the papers the next day, but to those in the ward household it was overshadowed by the odor which instantly followed it. A hideous, all-pervasive odor which none of them had ever smelt before or have ever smelt since. In the midst of this mephitic flood there came a very perceptible flash, like that of lightning, which would have been blinding and impressive but for the daylight around, and then was heard the voice that no listener can ever forget because of its thunderous remoteness, its incredible depth, and its eldritch dissimilarity to Charles Ward's voice. It shook the house, 
and was clearly heard by at least two neighbours above the howling of the dogs. Mrs. Ward, who had been listening in despair outside her son's locked laboratory, shivered as she recognised its hellish imports. For Charles had told of its evil fame in dark books, and of the manner in which it had thundered, according to the Fenner letter, above the doomed Portuxed farmhouse on the night of Joseph Cohen's annihilation. There was no mistaking that nightmare phrase, for Charles had described it too vividly in the old days when he had talked frankly of his Cohen investigations. And yet it was only this fragment of an archaic and forgotten language. Dismis, Jeshet, Brene, Dosef, Tuvema, Enite, Maus. Close upon this thundering there came a momentary darkening of the daylight, though sunset was still an hour distant, and then a puff of added odour different from the first, but equally unknown and intolerable. Charles was chanting again now, and his mother could hear syllables that sounded like Yinash Yog Sothoth He Igeb Thordag, ending in a Ya, whose maniacal force mounted in an ear-splitting crescendo. A second later, all previous memories were effaced by the wailing scream, which burst out with frantic explosiveness, and gradually changed form to a paroxysm of diabolic and hysterical laughter. Mrs. Ward, with the mingled fear and blind courage of maternity, advanced and knocked affrightedly at the concealing panels, but obtained no sign of recognition. She knocked again, but paused nervously as a second shriek arose, this one unmistakably in the familiar voice of her son, and sounding concurrently with the still-bursting cachinations of that other voice. Presently she fainted, although she is still unable to recall the precise and immediate cause. Memory sometimes makes merciful deletions. Mr. Ward returned from the business section at about quarter past six, and not finding his wife downstairs, was told by the frightened servants that she was probably watching at Charles's door, from which the sounds had been far stranger than ever before. Mounting the stairs at once, he saw Mrs. Ward stretched out at full length on the floor of the corridor outside the laboratory, and realising that she had fainted, hastened to fetch a glass of water from a set bowl in a neighbouring alcove. Dashing the cold fluid in her face, he was heartened to observe an immediate response on her part, and was watching the bewildered opening of her eyes when a chill shot through him and threatened to reduce him to the very state from which she was emerging. For the seemingly silent laboratory was not as silent as it had appeared to be, but held the murmurs of a tense, muffled conversation in tones too low for comprehension, yet of a quality profoundly disturbing to the soul. It was not, of course, new for Charles to mutter formulae, but this muttering was definitely different. It was so palpably a dialogue, or imitation of a dialogue, with the regular alteration of inflections suggesting question and answer, statement and response. One voice was undisguisedly that of Charles, but the other had a depth and hollowness which the youth's best powers of ceremonial mimicry had scarcely approached before. There was something hideous, blasphemous and abnormal about it, and but for a cry from his recovering wife which cleared his mind by arousing his protective instincts, it is not likely that Theodore Howland Ward could have maintained for nearly a year more his old boast that he had never fainted. As it was, he seized his wife in his arms and bore her quickly downstairs before she could notice the voices which had so horribly disturbed him. Even so, however, he was not quick enough to escape catching something himself which caused him to stagger dangerously with his burden. For Mrs. Ward's cry had evidently been heard by others than he, 
and there had come in response to it from behind the locked door the first distinguishable words which that masked and terrible colloquy had yielded. They were merely an excited caution in Charles's own voice, but somehow their implications held a nameless fright for the father who overheard them. The phrase was just this, shush, right. Mr. and Mrs. Ward conferred at some length after dinner, and the former resolved to have a firm and serious talk with Charles that very night. No matter how important the object, such conduct could no longer be permitted, for these latest developments transcend every limit of sanity and formed a menace to the order and nervous well-being of the entire household. The youth must indeed have taken complete leave of his senses, since only downright madness could have prompted the wild screams and imaginary conversations in assumed voices which the present day had brought forth. All this must be stopped, or Mrs. Ward would be made ill, and the keeping of servants become an impossibility. Mr. Ward rose at the close of the meal and started upstairs for Charles's laboratory. On the third floor, however, he paused at the sounds which he heard proceeding from the now disused library of his son. Books were apparently being flung about and papers wildly rustled, and upon stepping to the door Mr. Ward beheld the youth within, excitedly assembling a vast armful of literary matter of every size and shape. Charles's aspect was very drawn and haggard, and he dropped his entire load with a start at the sound of his father's voice. At the elder man's command he sat down, and for some time listened to the admonitions he had so long deserved. There was no scene. At the end of the lecture he agreed that his father was right, and that his noises, mutterings, incantations and chemical orders were indeed inexcusable nuisances. He agreed to a policy of great quiet, though insisting on a prolongation of his extreme privacy. Much of his future work, he said, was in any case purely book research, and he could obtain quarters elsewhere for any such vocal rituals as might be necessary at a later stage. For the fright and fainting of his mother, he expressed the keenest contrition, and explained that the conversation later heard was part of an elaborate symbolism designed to create a certain mental atmosphere. His use of abstruse technical terms somewhat bewildered Mr. Ward, but the parting impression was a one of undeniable sanity and poise, despite a mysterious tension of the utmost gravity. The interview was really quite inconclusive, and as Charles picked up his armful and left the room, Mr. Ward hardly knew what to make of the entire business. It was as mysterious as the death of poor old Nig, whose stiffening form had been found an hour before in the basement, with staring eyes and fear-distorted mouth. Driven by some vague detective instinct, the bewildered parent now glanced curiously at the vacant shelves to see what his son had taken up to the attic. The youth's library was plainly and rigidly classified, so that one might tell at a glance the books, or at least the kind of books, which had been withdrawn. On this occasion, Mr. Ward was astonished to find that nothing of the occult or the antiquarian, beyond what had been previously removed, was missing. These new withdrawals were all modern items, histories, scientific treatises, geographies, manuals of literature, philosophic works, and certain contemporary newspapers and magazines. It was a very curious shift from Charles Ward's recent run of reading, and the father paused in a growing vortex of perplexity and an engulfing sense of strangeness. The strangeness was a very poignant sensation, and almost clawed at his chest as he strove to see just what was wrong around him. Something was indeed wrong, and tangibly as well as spiritually so. Ever since he had been in this room, he had known that something was amiss, and at last it dawned upon him what it was. On the north wall rose still the ancient carved overmantel from the house in Olney Court. 
but to the cracked and precariously restored oils of the large Cohen portrait, disaster had come. Time and unequal heating had done their work at last, and at some time since the room's last cleaning, the worst had happened. Peeling clear of the wood, curling tighter and tighter, and finally crumbling into small bits with what must have been malignly silent suddenness, the portrait of Joseph Kerwin had resigned forever its staring surveillance of the youth it so strangely resembled, and now lay scattered on the floor as a thin coating of fine blue-grey dust. End of chapter 3 of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Read by Morgan Scorpion <laughs>